That's where it all begins, right up here, isn't it? These little worshipers, appreciate that, Wyatt. Noah did a fantastic job praising the Lord this morning. Love the enthusiasm. Some of us could relate more with Noah. Some of us could relate more with Wyatt. And that's all good. It's all good stuff here. So, well, it is good to see everybody. And it does uh, warm our hearts to see family members again, uh, back together again for the, the Christmas holidays. And I trust that you have had a wonderful Christmas. I asked, uh, I, I um, interviewed three or four of the little ones here this morning about their Christmas. And, and did they get anything good? And I just want you to know, parents, I had all good reports of what the kids got. They were very excited over their gifts. So I don't know what you did, but keep it up. Good job. We had a wonderful time at the Montagna household yesterday enjoying uh, exchanging gifts and enjoying each other's company. Well, this morning we are in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. And I have just one sermon point this morning. Don't get too excited. That doesn't mean that it's only going to be a third of the time that it usually is. It's a long one. But it's very simple. And it's right here in our text. And I've entitled the message, The Heart's Motivation. Or The Motivation in the Heart. So we're going to kind of look at the Apostle Paul and these words in 2 Corinthians. We're in chapter 5, verses 14 through 17. And I hope and pray that God's holy word challenges our hearts and helps align our hearts. Because we know that God is for our good and for his glory. And so what he says in his word can make us whole. And turn us into the worshipers and the people that God created us to be. So I want to go ahead and read these verses this morning, just three verses. For the love of Christ controls us because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh, even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. So we're talking about motivation. We're talking about what our hearts are after. Uh, Why we do the things we do, why we seek after the things we seek, and why we avoid certain things and choose not to seek them. In Matthew 6.21, Jesus said it straight in in the sense when he said, you know, where your treasure is, that's where your heart is. And I, I read that, and it sounds like such a, like a simple thing, but... It almost makes me feel vulnerable. You mean we're that, we're that obvious what we really love in life? Like you can just look at people and if you know them for any length of time, you can actually see what their hearts really love and treasure, what they're, what's motivating them in life. According to Jesus, that's the case. Where your heart is, that's where your treasure. Where your treasure is, that's where your heart can be found. The two are one. 
And that's what the Apostle Paul is getting at when he talks about his own heart. So what controls us? What motivates us? Some versions say compel us to do things. Or in this case, what motivates us or compels us to obey God at all? Why do we even want, why would we take the time, why would we bother ourselves to love the Lord, to obey the Lord? What is in our hearts? Well, as you know, obedience is not easy. I understand that it is easier for some than for others. I think that some of us just have a more obedient nature than others. Uh, Some of us gave our parents a fit. And others were just like, really not a heartache at all, no trouble at all. They just kind of seemed to obey. But all of us, in one degree or another, are broken. And, And we are born, in a sense, in disobedience because of our sin nature. And when Adam and Eve sinned in the garden, it just set our hearts and our minds and everything about us off kilter. So that we, we struggle with doing what we should do. And all the way back in the garden when God gave the command, very explicit, explicit, clear command of what you should have. You can do all of this, but you can't do this one thing. And the heart struggled with that and unfortunately did that one thing and it broke us. We're broken. And life is messy. And the more disobedient we are, the messier life gets. Because the universe, God is a holy God. He's perfect. He's organized. Everything has a, its kind, its place, its domain, its fear. And disobedience just rubs against that. And then we pay the price for it. So disobedience can be difficult. And the Christian life, because of our reluctance to just Read God's word and obey him. Things get hard. Things get difficult. And we find ourselves, I would venture to say, every day at one point or another, having to fight what the Bible calls the flesh. And that is our own desires, our own will, the parts of us that are off kilter, the things that we love too much or things that we don't love enough that Scripture informs us about. We have to fight the flesh. We have to fight our sinful desires. Now, if you are one of those people that says, praise God, when I came to Christ, obedience just was natural for me. And I haven't disobeyed him since I came to Christ. I would say, good for you. That's not normal. That's just not at all normal. That's not my experience. And I, I don't, I've never really heard anybody say it quite like that. Uh, but I will say that when we come to Christ, there are or can be certain areas in our lives that honestly, it's just no longer that hard to obey Christ. When I became a Christian, there were certain areas that God informed me by his holy word that this is sinful. This is displeasing to God. And I was like, fine. I don't need those things anymore. And I have not struggled with them or like very, very few times in my Christian life. There's areas that I have struggled. For, for instance, uh, you know, clean speech or, or cussing. I, I just cuss because that's what you did. 
And, um, you know, the more cuss words you could fit into a sentence, the cooler you were in growing up. But when I became a Christian, that was just not even important to me anymore. But there were other things that I am still trying to get rid of. I'm still trying to obey the Lord and in line my life up with God's will. It's a struggle. So some of us will carry certain struggles of the flesh and fighting the flesh to our graves. But God never gives up on us. Just remember that. Uh, you, you don't outgrow sanctification. You just go from sanctification to glorification. But when you're in this world, you're God's to work on. No matter what state we're in, no matter how young or old we are. So, if there's disobedience in our lives, you know how it works. It's tension. It's not fun. It's not fun when you know good and well in your heart and in your mind you should be doing this and you just say no. And it can be easy things. Just easy, simple things that we can be disobedient in and it messes us up. I mean, we could be, we could be sitting on the couch. Finally, I get to relax. I got the popcorn in my lap. And it's me time and then a call comes and somebody needs help. And you know that that's more important and that would please the Lord and it would bless that person more than you sitting there eating the popcorn, watching that movie or Netflix or whatever. And you just know I need to do this. Everything in you. And then and if you don't do it, man, it kind of ruins the, the flavor of things. And we think that we're getting what we really want and it turns against us sometimes we just we hold out so i want to kind of look at this passage and look specifically today at the motivation say of christian obedience because our motivation or what's in our hearts and our minds as we do what we do matters to god god's well, the, the, the proper word for it is he's holy and he's perfect. But picky. Like he, he's just exacting. Uh, he wants everything right according to his design because that's how it's supposed to be. Because it reflects his nature and his character. And it's an assault to his holy character if we don't bring everything into Line with that. He, he deeply cares. It matters to him. Not just what we do. But why we do it. So motivations. As you know. Have, has to do with why. The reasons behind things. And why things in our own lives. Perhaps might not be where they should be. And because of the fall. Sometimes we can actually do. Uh, right things for the wrong reasons. Like our actions look great on the surface, but our hearts are rotten. And do, you can do right things for the wrong reasons, and you can do wrong things with the right motivation. You think you're doing right. You want to do right. But it actually was not a good thing. So let me give um, an example how this would play out in real life, uh, or at least... It, what, how Jesus, this is an example that Jesus would give in Matthew chapter 6. In the first four verses. He is teaching his followers and he says, Beware of practicing your righteousness 
before other people in order to be seen by them. For then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. Thus, when you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may be praised by others. So truly I say to you, they have received their reward, but when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your giving may be in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. So there's there's the teaching of God the Son, and He is teaching His people how much what's in the heart matters when we do what we do. And... You have this group of people, the Pharisees or the Sadducees, who do the right thing. Uh, they, they give. Uh, they, they obey the law of the Lord. But the reason behind it is all about praising and bringing glory to themselves. They want people to think highly of them with their acts. And God calls that out and says that is wrong that's not what i teach you that's not how i want you to live because you just took something right that is created to honor me and made it all about yourself how many times do we do that that's a slippery slope there there are times that christians are not immune to doing things like that by any means we, we have we might even start out with the right motivation and then self sneaks in there oh i like this I like what this is doing for me. This is gaining me attention or recognition. So God is is exacting in that sense. Now, honestly, I'm not that exacting or picky or holy would be, again, the better word, pure. Because a lot of times, if you just do the right thing, I'm happy. I don't care why you're doing it. Just do it. Hey, we get her done. I don't know your motivations or... Or what's in the heart. And sometimes it would affect me, sure. But, you know, when, when, if my kids just obeyed, I'm like, Whoa. Oh, man. Lord, thank you for that. <laughs> Whether they did it for the right reason or not. I just avoided a battle. I just avoided a fight. I'm easy to please. But God's not impressed. He's not impressed with this kind of living, this kind of faith, this kind of uh, religion. You know, when you act like you're doing something for God and it's really about you, God knows these things and he cares. He cares about it and he cares about us in that. Because if it's a form of disobedience, it's not good for us in whatever form it comes in, even when it looks like we're doing the right thing. So it's hard. So now now we learn that not only do we have to do the right thing, which is hard enough, we have to do it with the right motivation. Here's another example in 2 Corinthians uh, chapter 9. We're not there yet, but 6 and 7. The Apostle Paul says to the church in Corinth, the point is this, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. Whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And there's another example. When it comes to our offering, our tithe, our sacrifices for the Lord, giving, it's not just like God says, hey, I'll take anything I can get. 
the more the merrier. Now, quantity is important to God too because He knows our hearts. He knows what pleases Him based on what He has provided for us. It's, it's possible not to give enough. But it's also possible to give tremendous amounts for the wrong reasons. And it's interesting that he gives us two reasons why we shouldn't be doing certain things in his name or for his his honor in the way of uh, not to do it reluctantly or under compulsion. In other words, if you're doing things just out of sheer guilt, you, you don't want to do it, it's not in your heart to do it, and you're just doing it, say, to people, please, or whatever... That's not a proper reason. Um, or under compulsion, manipulated. How many, uh, how many evangelists, pastors, preachers, religious people use manipulation tactics? They work, by the way. Well, we know that as parents, right? Part of parenting is learning the secret of manipulation. Uh, even though that's terrible and wrong, sometimes we do that. But it's manipulation. It's not a reason. It's not, it's not what, how God designed the universe for us to be manipulated to do this and then manipulated to do that or feel guilty. We go from being manipulated to feeling guilty and it's just, that's not a place to live. God cares about these things. So he says, think about it. Who are you? What do you, what do you have is in the area of giving anyway in this illustration? And what has God provided for you? What are the needs out there? Th- think about it biblically and scripturally and then make a decision. Here's what I'd like to do. And I've kind of silently talked to God about it. And this is what I'm going to do. And then do it cheerfully. Don't turn back. Don't let anybody swerve you. Just You just give. So God love. He, he just literally tells us, I love a cheerful giver. Can you imagine? So if we if we like we're, the offering plates going around and we're trying to decide how much should I give? Man, I just looked in and I got big bills. I shouldn't have brought these big bills to church. And now what? Okay, I just put them in there. But the whole time you're thinking I should have never done that. I should have never put up. You know that's not how it's supposed to work. Then there's tension. There's that that misery in there. So. Be generous, sure. Of course we're going to be generous. There's the cause and effect principle in here first. And that is, look, if you're, if you're going to be stingy, uh, then that's how life's going to look for you. Because that's what you're going to, you're going to reap. You, you reap what you sow. It's the cause and effect built into how God created things. So there's the, the wrong motives that come into play there. I, I heard a pastor say one time, it's been years ago now, he was asking me about how we did offering in our church and so forth. And, and he said, uh, we pass around a plate. And the deacons bring it to me and I look in that plate. And if it looks like there's not enough in there, I pass it around again. <laughs> Interesting way. I guess it works. So, you know, the, the glorious thing in here as we think about kind of getting back to Corinthians is how God has changed Paul's heart. I mean, if you think about all these hard things in life and look how God, the gospel, the power of God has changed his heart to where he knows what motivates him. He knows why 
things might come easy to him or things might come hard to him. The Gospels changed him. And so, what a glorious thing to not be guilted. To not not be manipulated because you know God. You know His Word. His Spirit is active in you. You're, you're, You're laying... You're taking off the old man, the old clothes, and you're putting the new man on. And it makes a difference in how we think and how we feel and how we live. So do the right thing, but get your heart behind it too. There's Both of those are important. A lot of times Christians will read these kind of passages and say, well, I can't do any. I'm not going to do anything for God. I'm not going to church. I'm not giving. I'm not serving in any way. Why? Well, because my heart's not in it. Well, I don't think that's the answer. The answer is to, is not just to be even more disobedient because your heart. No, you do the right thing because God says it. And then you bring your feelings and your emotions behind it and back it up. So it's a process. It's transformation. So don't make the mistake of saying, well, it, does the Bible say if my heart's not right, I shouldn't do anything? Uh, that's going to make it hard for your relationships with God and with people. And you put your best foot forward and you do what's right, and, but, but the whole time you're getting your heart to follow you because God cares. Why would God even care about this? I mean, why is it on his heart? Well, he's holy and it's his character, but he's also loving and he cares for us. And he knows something about us that we, we, we resist. And that is that our, our greatest joy is found in loving him. It's our greatest joy. He knows that about us. We resist it. We have to be reconvinced and reconvinced day after day that that's true. But it's for our own good. And he wants us to be cheer- a cheerful people. He doesn't want grumpy congregations. He doesn't want sick churches. You know, churches that are just manipulated or guilted all the time, that's not healthy. So for our own good, for the joy of our own hearts, there's benefits to righteous living. You know, God rewards those who earnestly seek Him. He says that's, you can't please God without faith because you have to believe that He exists and He rewards those who earnestly seek them, seek Him. So there's built-in benefits. We reap what we sow here. And God cares about our hearts that much to even go after our motivations. Now, I'm not as picky about motivations. And I know law enforcement is not as picky about motivations. Just stop at a red light. Stop at a stop sign. Obey the speed limit. And they're happy. Law enforcement's happy. They don't care what's in your heart when you're driving the speed limit. Or what's in your heart. Or even if you go through the red light, you get a ticket. No matter what the reason is, unless you find the right person. The right day. <laughs> Which seldom happens. But. So, we can do things in life. Like not, this, this doesn't transfer into every sphere of life. Like, nobody's going to question your motives. But for the believer, God looks at our motives in everything we do. So this is kingdom stuff. You can get away with other things in the world, but kingdom stuff 
is what is in your heart? Why do you do what you do? What is the primary reason? The Apostle Paul says the love of Christ controls us, compels us. It, it hedges us in. It defines us. Because one has died for all. That's why we don't do what we don't do. And why we do what we don't. Or why we do what we do. This is from the apostle who once hated Christians and persecuted them. And the, the transforming power of the gospels transferred him into the greatest missionary in the, the world has ever known, honestly. And, and look, look what was behind all of that. All the things that the Apostle Paul did and went through. And you'll learn about much of his suffering in 2 Corinthians. It is incredible. His love for Christ is incredible. And we get a little taste of it in Acts when it is prophesied to him, Paul, if you go to Jerusalem, you're going to be bound. And what does Paul say? I'm going to Jerusalem. So, like, th this kind of motivation puts all things in their proper place, even safety. So when he, basically, it was prophesied, you are not safe. It is not safe for you, man of God, servant of the Lord, to go to Jerusalem. This will happen to you. He, he, he even puts safety in its right place. This is how I'm, my, my obedience to God, I love God and I love him enough to, uh, I love him even more than my own safety. And there will be times when God calls us to that. To love him more even than our own safety. And there are other times where Paul obeys God and loves him even more than being able to exercise his personal freedoms, if you can imagine. Give up personal freedoms? You mean give up things that actually are wholesome and good for me to do? I have every right to do them. And on other occasions, they're pleasing to God, but give those up in this occasion? See, see how that the prioritizing and what Paul treasures helps him keep his life in order and not live under guilt and manipulation? It's an amazing thing what applying our hearts to loving God can do for him and for ourselves. And of course, for the church. And for the world, it's a willful love. A willful love that he has because of what God did for him. One died for all. As if he goes through each day just feeling so grateful for the reality that his sins have been washed away. Because God opened his eyes to his sin. And he got to see how displeasing and dishonoring and and yucky and dark and vile they were, that they were satanic. Satan is behind rebellion. And he's so grateful to be set free from that and to enjoy the benefits of the kingdom while he's still on earth and while he still struggles with sin. That is a motivation that he, that he, uh, that he holds. So, yeah, why we do things matter. So can you imagine if you get to heaven and, you know, you're so excited to be there and you can't wait to see Jesus face to face and you and you run up to him and you get the response like, well, you know, I did it because I had to do it. But 
I pretty much made a mistake. I'm kind of sorry you're even up here. Can you imagine, like, the motivation? How sobering it can be when we do certain things and why we do them? He died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves. Wow. You mean God did all of this because he loves us, but also so that he redeems us. We no longer live for ourselves. There's the battle. The age old Christian battle of, again, dying to the flesh. And what does it mean for us not to live for ourselves? Because that's why Christ died. Well, originally we were created to live for him, to exalt him, to glorify him, to enjoy him. And that's what Christ is is accomplishing in us. And it cannot be accomplished without his death. That we might not live for ourselves. Now, how in the world can you even do that in our culture today? When everything we're fed is live for yourself. I mean, commercials... Kids, cartoons, apps, like everything feeds us that what you need is more of you. Those thoughts you're having, those desires that you're having, you need more of those. And when they can all be everything in your heart and mind that you want, it's nothing about some of them actually might be wrong. But just whatever your heart wants, that's what you need to go after because that's what life is all about. And it's the carrot on the end of the stick. That's a lie. And, you know, the Bible says, actually, your heart's foolish. Don't listen to it. Get some counsel. Put it under the word of God or you're going to suffer heartache. That's not the advice the world gives us. The world, the, the world says you can't get enough of yourself. As a matter of fact, the problem with you is other people. Because they are restraining you and they're in your way. From getting what your heart wants. And when you get these things. Well then you're going to experience joy like. You're not experiencing right now. See how twisted and distorted. Things can be. There's a battle for our hearts right. Our very hearts. And Proverbs says guard your heart. Why? Because out of it flows the water of life. Your very essence comes out of your heart. And the scripture saying be careful guard it. Don't let anything into it. And the world is saying, just listen to yourself. There's a, there's a philosophy behind it that I won't get into, but the idea is that non-Christians redefine what, a human, what it means to be human and conclude that the freer we are to do whatever we want to do, then that's when we are the ultimate human being. So that's why we are in a culture where everybody has their own issues and their own causes and they're supposed to all be equally important because you are the final authority of your life. What's right and wrong if there is such a thing as right and wrong. But the, the end game is that for me to be as free as I possibly can be, so I have to figure out how to get everybody out of my way or manipulate or negotiate and so I can use you to get what I want. That is exactly opposite of what Scripture tells us. Scripture says, actually, you're not even alive until you die. 
you think you're alive, you're, you're deceived because you don't know life as it's meant to be lived and as it will be lived in eternity until you take yourself and those ambitions and those desires that are against God or or deluded with wrong motives and everything else and just put them on the altar. They have to die in order for you to really experience the joy and the glory of the Lord and of life. That's what sets you free. Tricky. That's what sets you free. We either believe it or we do not. That's the solution that sets us free from what, you know, our culture says everything is toxic today. Masculinity is toxic. Everything is toxic. It's hurting me. The Bible says, yeah, we, 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 our sins hurt other people, but the biggest problem with me is my own heart. You notice how the Bible keeps pointing the finger back at ourselves? Because what we're taught is that the solution to my problems is for you to change. Because you're kind of making me a miserable person. The way you're treating me, whatever. And the Bible says, actually, you will be set free when you change your own heart. Things get twisted and turned. You know, even as churches, we have to be careful about this kind of mindset about how we live, how important our desires are, which one of them are right and what is wrong, because we can even become a self-focused church if we're not careful. And some of, uh, you know, a lot of, there are a lot of popular books in Christianity about you know, counseling and solving our issues, which I think are great or important. And we certainly need all the help we can get. But we have to be careful that we don't make church about solving all my issues. Because God calls us here first and foremost to exalt him and honor him and proclaim his excellencies. No matter how we feel or no matter what's going on in our lives, that's the freedom the gospel gives us. So that we're not bound by oppression. We're not bound by. And, and held in bondage by other people. But the gospel sets us free to give our all to God, no matter how deprived we might think we are, no matter how hard it is at home or in our marriage or school or whatever. That's the freedom and the power of the gospel right there. So we, we don't want to make it about ourselves. Well, if I could just feel better about this or if this area of my life could be healed, then I could really worship God. That's not how it works. God is deserving of our worship no matter what. Or where we are in life. And we are better off to get to that point of worshiping Him under those circumstances. Though the fig tree will not blossom, Amos says, yet I will praise the Lord. I don't need the circumstances. I don't have to line this thing up to do this thing. This is my priority is praising Him. And then... Seek God in all the other things. Then they come in. Then they shall be added unto you. So we never die to self. We cannot really live. One of the things that I think I see in Christianity as well. Is you have say people that start coming to church. Or kids that are raised in the church. And uh, they want to benefit from Christian blessings. And yet have never died to self. Like. 
I want that kind of marriage, or I want that kind of family, or I want to be like that kind of person. I, I want people to look at me at that way, or I want to have that kind of reputation. And yet they've never died to self, and you can't get certain, you can't get the blessings of God until we die to self. It's almost like Christ just becomes an add-on or another app to put on your phone. I've got this, this, and this, but I need a little bit of Christ too. Then I have the, purpose, the perfect combination. That's not how the gospel works, thank the Lord. No, you put everything down. You get rid of all. You die to that so that God, Christ in you, can come alive. And the Apostle Paul, as we, we wind down here, he also says, From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him no longer. And that's basically saying, we, I don't look, I'm so transformed, I don't look at people through uh, the world's way of judging and valuing. I don't judge by what they have or what they don't have, but what's in the heart. And he even judged, other people judge Christ. He's a subpar human. He doesn't deserve to, to teach, he has no credentials, and he, he's poor and so forth. And Paul's like, no, I've learned not to do that. That's a, that's a big mistake. I'm less inclined to judge others by their appearance, by their behavior. I know what it's like to be judged in that way. I know what it's like to fall short. But I also know what it's like to find grace. The Apostle Paul, why was he compelled to plant churches? His love for God. He's a new creation. And now he is as free as he has ever been. For the love of Christ controls us. Let me just close with how we might apply this or think about this in our lives. And I'll use an example of marriage. Because we're talking about a primary motive for why we do what we do. And that is the love of Christ. And that's why I no longer live for myself. Now, there are secondary things. There are reasons why we might do or not do certain things. So let's apply this. Uh, for instance, why we should not leave a spouse. Why, why should I not leave a spouse? So there are plenty of good reasons why we shouldn't leave our spouse. The first one might be, uh, well, so that they may not find another. So if I leave my spouse, I may never find another, and then I might live lonely the rest of my life. So that's a, a good motivator, right? Or second, they would crush, this would crush the children if I left my spouse. That's good motivation. Third, might lose friends, uh, might make enemies, might live in shame. Fourth reason, might lose her job or career if it's ministry or certain family business or something. Leaving a spouse, you could, you could forfeit your career. Might be a motivation not to do it. Fifth, a spouse might get remarried and that could cause jealousy. Well, that wouldn't be a good way. Six, uh, if you're a, a church-going person, you might experience church discipline depending on the terms of all of these things. And that would be shame and guilt and that could alter your life. So these are... Secondary reasons, there's warrant in all of them. The good reasons, not. But secondary. You know, jealousy, losing careers, and so forth. 
But what would be the primary reason not to leave a spouse? Assuming, of course, there's not abuse and so forth in the situation. Talking about a battle of dying to flesh. Well, love, because you love them. Because you, you stay with your spouse because you want their best. That's what marriage is, right? You love them. You want their best. It's not about you. It's about them. That's the motivation behind it. And so these other things are secondary. It's not a place to live. Where you want to live, what you want to, to drive you, is that all of those support the fact that you want to be there for them. This is what I've pledged my life. I covenanted to be there for you, to, to be that person for you, to be God's provision for you, God's feet, God's hands. That's what controls so even in our Christianity, we want to make sure that the secondary issues are not what's really driving us to do what we do and to serve God in the way that we serve Him. Because the secondary motivations, they're good, but they don't last as long. They don't stand the test of time. So have you died to self? Have you determined to live for Christ. And as we think about this passage, what is the motivation for why we do what we do? Why are we here? Why do we church, do church the way we do? I hope and pray that it's because the gospel has so changed us, like the Apostle Paul, that the most important thing in our lives and what we're driven by is the love of Christ because He died for us and redeemed us from bondage and set us free to live and worship Him. May Christ be our treasure, and may God bless the preaching of His Word. Uh, I want to do something just a little different here this morning, and that is speaking about treasuring God and Christ. Uh, nobody knows I'm going to do this but me. But um, we have a group of young adults that are going to a conference this later in the week with two chaperones. And um, that popped in my head because my wife's going as a chaperone, so I'm just reminding myself that I will be single and lonely for a few days. <laughs> but anyway, so our thriving young, uh, young adult ministry, many of them, uh, they all tried to go. Not all could, could get off work and make the arrangements, but... It was a blessing to me to hear the enthusiasm of our young adults wanting to go to this conference called CrossCon, where they'll be exposed to some of the best uh, evangelical minds and preachers that we have in our, in our day. So I am really excited for them. Um, the elders, we have elders have attended some of these conferences, and the speakers are outstanding. We're always encouraged. And so these young folks will go. And they will rub shoulders with other like-minded believers. They will sit under excellent teaching. So I would just ask if you would come forward, if you're here this morning and you're going to CrossCon, just stand here. I just want to pray for you guys real quick. Young folks, is any of them in here? There, there, there they come. Thank you for indulging me. I think there's more than this, but they're not all here. Is that right? Madison's in the back. Abby's in the back. Who else? Oh, she's going to get them. Okay, so we'll wait.
So one, two, five, six, seven, eight, nine. Is there nine of you? Oh, and Alex. Alex Rouse. Okay. So Alex isn't here this morning. Thank you for coming up here. We just want to pray for you guys, and we appreciate your hearts for seeking Christ. I know you didn't hear the sermon. Trust me. You just have to trust me on this. You, you too. Everybody knows what's going on but you guys, but it's okay. All right. Let's, let's bow our heads and pray. Father, thank you for these young hearts. Thank you for these folks that have uh, set their minds on you and you've done a work in them. And what an encouragement it is to see their hunger for your word, their desire to understand and grasp what it means um, to live for you, what the gospel means, and how it transforms our lives. We would ask God for trace, for safe travels. It's uh, Louisville, Kentucky. Kentucky is a, a long haul, and they're going to drive it. They're going to drive it together. Lord, keep the drivers alert. We ask for your guardian angels to protect them to and fro. And while they're there, Lord, um, this is a big deal. A lot of sacrifices have had to be made in order for them to go. They're young adults. They have responsibilities. I pray that you would speak to each one just so. Uh, specifically, um, and that you would probe their heart and mind and that they would come away having heard from the living God. Bless the, the, the speakers, Lord, and any relationships that, and friendships that may be forged during this conference. In Jesus' name, we thank you. Amen. 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 Thank you. Appreciate that.